Bibles open to Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to read beginning in verse 35 through to the end of the chapter and then a couple of verses in chapter 10. Matthew 9 and verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. Verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, would you please come and minister to us through your word. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice. Help us to know what you are saying to us individually, to us as a congregation. For your praise we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to have the first of a two-part message on Matthew 9, verse 35, through all of chapter 10. We could call this two-part message, Lord of the Harvest. Lord of the Harvest, and subtitle it, A Call to Pray and Go, and then A Call to Suffer, to Serve and to Send. Today, A Call to Pray and Go. A little bit of context for you, You've been, you who have been with us over recent weeks and months will know this. We are working our way through Matthew's Gospel, and we've had Jesus appear, the Christmas uh, event is described in chapter 1 and 2, and Jesus has then been baptized, Jesus was then tempted in the wilderness, he then delivered the great and wonderful Sermon on the Mount in which he declared the ethics and the conduct of the kingdom of God, and then he's done in chapters. Uh, 8 and early part of chapter 9, he has done a number of very powerful miracles by which he substantiates his claim to be Lord and King overall. The King has come. King Jesus is on the throne and he's the one who has power over disease and power over storms and power over death itself. And now as we come to the end of chapter 9 into chapter 10, we hear our King and our Savior say some things to us that indicate to us that he has in mind not just a little kingdom, 
not just a kingdom for a small or location or place, but he has in mind a great kingdom. He has in mind a kingdom that will eventually cover the face of the earth. There is a harvest that is coming, and he is Lord of the harvest. And as we, as we come to the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, we, we see that Jesus gives us two major imperatives, two major commandments, and under those commandments are a number of other principles and teachings. These, these commandments, these major imperatives are pray and go. Pray and go. When it comes to the harvest, when it comes to the building and advancing of the kingdom of God, we are to pray and we are to go. Notice verses 37 and 38 of chapter 9. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He says, pray, pray earnestly. The, the Greek word that he uses here is a word that speaks about begging and entreating and pleading. He is, he is, he is saying, get down on your knees and plead with the Lord of the harvest. Plead that there will be laborers, that there will be workers. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. There is a Lord of the harvest, and it isn't me, and it isn't you. It is King Jesus. He is the Lord of the harvest. He's in charge, and, and he will give the increase, and he will also call the workers to it. So Jesus says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest for laborers, for workers, because the laborers are few. Say, we need more workers, Jesus said. We need, we need workers, we need laborers, not mission hobbyists, not, not those who dabble in mission, not those who try it out from time to time. We need people who are committed to it, people who enter into the field and are ready to plant and to water and to weed and to gather in a harvest. We need hardworking Workers, Jesus says, so pray, plead with God that he would send those laborers to us. And then we hear our Lord issue a command, and that command is to go. That was found in verses 5 through 7. Here Jesus says three times, go, go, go. And, it, and it's interesting, early on, uh, it's a very limited going that he, he commands of the disciples uh, before it, this message and this kingdom gets to the Gentiles, gets to the Samaritans, it has to start with the Jewish people to the Jew first and then to the Greek. There is in God's redemptive plan a kind of priority in terms of sequence uh, to the Jewish people. And, and Jesus says here, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Later on in chapter uh, verse 18, I think it is, he shows us that it's going to expand to the Gentiles. And of course, you know how Matthew ends, right? What, is, what are the last words of Matthew's gospel? All authority is given to me in heaven on earth, Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all nations, 
all nations, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, or behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let's, let's just make sure that we, we see the significance of what Jesus does here and says here in Matthew 9 and 10. In Matthew 9 and verse 36, Jesus identifies the need. He's looking around at people everywhere and all around him, and he says they are like sheep who are harassed and helpless, not having a shepherd. He identifies human beings as being desperately needy. But what is striking, friends, is that he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, oh my, look at all of this need. I'll take care of it. After all, I can be everywhere all the time, and I have all power, so I can get this done real quick. Jesus does not say, look at all that need I've got this. Rather, what he says to us is, look at all that need. I want you to take care of it. Look at all that need. It is up to you to pray and to go. This is, this is significant. This is, this is Jesus revealing to us his plan, his strategy, what he could have done on his own what he could still do on his own, just declaring it from his throne in heaven, he could just, with a very loud voice, send the message of the kingdom everywhere on this planet and save everybody that he's chosen, and boom, it's done. He could have done that. He could do that, but he says, no, my strategy is to do this through my people. My strategy is to do this through the church, making us, in the words of Paul, co-workers or fellow workers with God. It's an astonishing thing. It, 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 it brings to us tremendous significance. It, it gives to us a tremendous calling. God's plan for the advancement of his kingdom is not to shout from the heavens, but to speak through us. God's plan is to get it done through his church, and there is no plan B. There isn't any other plan. This is it. And so right from the start, this needs to, this needs to be part of our identity, part of our self-awareness as individual Christians and as a congregation. We are here to bear witness of Jesus. We, we are here to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. We are here, in the words of chapter 5, to be the light of the world. We are a city on a hill. We are not to take the light of our lives and the light of the gospel and hide it under a bushel basket. We are to shine forth, in the words of chapter 4. We are to be fishers of men. We are to be workers in the harvest. We are sent ones. We are co-workers with God. This is what it's about. Yes, we are sons of God and daughters of God and children of God. And yes, we are adopted and loved. But God has also called us into his family to be 
his witnesses in this world. So Jesus' imperative, sir, pray and go. Pray and go. Pray and be in an outward pattern and mode of life. So what the, the word go implies, right? It, it, the primary work of the church is not to invite the world in. The primary work of the church is to go out into the world with the gospel. Take the gospel. Take Jesus into the world. Go, go, go. Take initiative outward. Now, as we do this, Jesus in chapter 10 gives us some very deep and um, detailed and in some ways frightening teaching. He makes sure to tell us that this going is not going to be easy and this, this going is going to require great sacrifice and this outward orientation is going to invite persecution and affliction and hatred because after all if that's how they treat the master that's how they're going to treat his servants and so we need to make sure that we hear what Jesus says here so that we go well so that we go in strength so that we go in such a way that we can actually help to advance the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ so let me quickly run through a number of thoughts here that are based especially uh, in the text that we've read and then a few other verses. If we are going to go, if we are going to go well, then there are seven things, if you will, that we need to take with us. There are, there are seven commitments that we need to have. First, we will need to feel the compassion of Christ. If we're going to go out into this world, if we're going to go out into this dangerous world, if we're going to go out into this unbelieving world, we need to feel the compassion of Christ. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. How do you see the world in this age of anger and uncivility and, and arguing and fighting and politicking and all the nastiness that is going on, isn't it easy to, to see the world as being full of evil people and dark people and ugly people and mean people? But when Jesus sees the world, when he looks out into the world, his heart is filled with compassion. He sees that they are sheep. People in this world are sheep without a shepherd. They are harassed. They are helpless. And that's why in other places he stands and he looks over Jerusalem and he weeps over Jerusalem. Because his heart breaks over the sinful condition of people. His heart breaks because they are aimless. And, and Paul the Apostle shared in this same compassion in Romans 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ, he says. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I have a hard time relating to Paul here. I don't think I've ever in my whole life felt this kind of compassion. A willingness. If, if, if it would have done, it's, it's hard to tell exactly what Paul is saying here, but it, at the very least, he is saying, I would be willing to give up everything for the sake of those that don't know Jesus. I, I could wish myself accursed if it meant that others would be blessed. I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. In Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19, he writes, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Here Paul is talking about people who are in open hostility to Jesus and to the cross, and he says, I, I say this even with tears, with tears. They are enemies of Christ, and their end is destruction. They are aimless and harassed and helpless in this life. But the real heartache is that the next life is going to be even worse. That the closest the unbeliever gets to heaven is here on earth. And the harassment and the helplessness and the pain and the sorrow of this life will not compare to the sorrow and the pain of the life to come. And Paul says, even though these are enemies of the cross of Christ, even though they stand in opposition to Jesus, my heart breaks when I think about this. Oh, dear ones, I have a hard time relating to this. It's my first impulse when I see people, is it, is it anger or is it compassion? Is it indignation or is it compassion? Is it self-righteous judgment or is it compassion? Is it suspicion or is it compassion? We need to feel the compassion of Christ. Secondly, we need to embrace the confidence of Christ. We need to embrace the confidence of Christ. Verse 37, he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful. There's confidence. What's Jesus saying? He's saying there are going to be a lot of people brought in. I'm going to save many, 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 many people. The harvest is going to be great. The harvest is going to be plentiful. He is confident in the power of the gospel. He is confident in the power of the cross. He is confident in the power of the Holy Spirit. The harvest truly, surely is going to be plentiful. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to embrace the confidence of Christ. I don't know about you, many times my evangelism, my witness, my mission lacks confidence. I go out thinking, well, is anybody going to listen today? I doubt it. 
But Jesus said, no, the, the harvest is plentiful. We need to embrace the confidence of Christ. And next, we need to imitate the model of Christ. We need to imitate the model of Christ. Look at verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. I, I, there's something significant here. This is the model of Christ as he's on mission. He's, he's doing two things. He is touching the body and reaching the soul. He's touching the body and he's reaching the soul. He's touching the body with healing, with restoration, with deliverance. Later on, with food. Whatever the need was, he would address the need. He would touch the body in order to reach the soul. He would preach the gospel of the kingdom. He would touch the body, making sure that the kingdom of God came not just in word, but in deed, that the kingdom of God was seen not just as something for the spirit or the soul, but something also that could bring health and healing to bodies, that the kingdom of God was concerned about the whole person, and we should be as well, because in chapter 10, Jesus says just that, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, proclaim the kingdom of God. We need, to, we need to imitate the model of Christ. We need to touch the body with grace and provision and care, and we need to reach the soul of people through the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel of the kingdom? The gospel of the kingdom is this. The king, Jesus, the king loved us so much that he saw us in our helpless, harassed state. He saw us in our sin. He saw us as subjects of the kingdom of darkness, bound for hell, bound for destruction. And in his love and in his pity and in his compassion, the king stepped down off of his throne into this world. That's Christmas. Stepped down into this world and took on a human body that he might die in behalf of and in the place of human beings. So that the king dies in the place of the subjects who deserve to die. And then the king rises triumphant from the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is the risen king. He is the reigning king. And in his kingdom, he is establishing his throne in human hearts. Around in this room right here today are a couple of hundred people, many of whom used to be citizens of the kingdom of darkness, who are now citizens of the kingdom of God used to be bound and enslaved to sin, now have been set free. Used to be the devil's pawns, now are the king's sons. The king has set us free. The king is establishing his throne in our hearts. And then through us is advancing his kingdom into this world. And he is reaching more and more people in more and more nations with every passing moment of time. The king has come. 
And the gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of his amazing love giving himself for us, his triumphant power raised from the dead, his present ongoing and eternal reign and rule on the throne of heaven. That is the kingdom. That is the gospel of the kingdom. That's our message. We can touch the body, but if we never reach the soul with that message, we've done people no good. Done people no good. People need to be reached in their souls with this message of the king. This is the model of Christ. This is how he did it. Touch the body and reach the soul. And in chapter 10, he says that we are to do it the same way. And then fourth, not only need to feel the compassion of Christ, not only need to embrace the confidence of Christ, not only need to imitate the model of Christ, we need to bear the authority of Christ. We need to go forth knowing that we go in the name and with the authority of the king himself. Verse 1, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And with this authority, he says later on, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. What's he saying? He is saying part of the mission, part of the way that we go forward is we go forward with power. We go forward with authority. We go forward in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you believe? Do you believe that the kinds of things Jesus describes here can happen today? I believe they can. I believe they are happening around the world. We need to pray for this. We need to plead for this. Lord, give us the power of your name, the authority of your name, so that we can heal the sick, so that we can deliver people from demons, so that we can do the kinds of things that will wake people up to their need for Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I was having coffee with a friend of mine who, until recently, was not a believer. And I befriended him, and we've had a number of conversations about King Jesus. And on this particular occasion, a couple of weeks ago, he comes to my house. We're sitting with coffee, and he says, Tim, do you believe in visions? I said, yes, I do. He said, well, I had one. I said, tell me about it. And he proceeded to say that in this vision, he saw this bright cloud and, and then extending from the cloud was an arm with a, an upward turned hand, obviously inviting him forward. And as he reached up to touch the hand from the cloud, he said, everything, everything turned blazing white whiter than any snow you've ever seen. It was purity, it was brightness, it was blazing white. And he said, in that moment, I fell on my hands and my knees in this vision, and I felt myself to be so dirty. I was filthy. I was filthy. And then I woke up. I've never been more convinced that a vision had been seen. Because in that moment, this man went from a measure of indifference 
and flippancy about his sin to being on his face in the presence of a holy God, knowing how desperately he needed forgiveness. You know how easy it was for me to give him the gospel that day? I just said, hey, my friend, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the one who died for those sins. Let me tell you about the one who can cleanse you, make you clean, and forgive you of it all. I believe that afternoon he came to faith in Christ. But here's the, here's the thing, friends. That vision did, in however many seconds it lasted, 10 seconds, that vision did more than 10,000 of my words could do. In a moment of time, God broke through the indifference. God broke through all the, the uh, I'm interested, I'm not interested. In that moment, God did through that miraculous vision, God did something that only God could do. I want more of that in my witness. I want to see things happen. We should want to see things happen that will make people sit up and take note, especially people in a secular culture like ours who don't believe in anything supernatural, anything from God. Oh, that God would send some things into their lives. May there be healings. May there be awakenings. May there be deliverances. May there be visions. May there be prophetic words. Oh, Lord, come with power that we might bear your authority. And we might be able to say, like the apostles of all, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. This is the authority of Christ that we should be praying for. Fifth, we will need to trust the provision of Christ. We will need to trust the provision of Christ as we pray and as we go. Look at verse 8 of chapter 10. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or no or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that very often as we get engaged in the work of the kingdom of God, we, we can't carry six suitcases and be hauling a U-Haul with us. He is saying, live simply. He is saying... Be willing to trust me for your needs rather than yourself. You say, I will take care of you. I will provide for you. Go about the... He's not saying it's wrong to save money. He's not... That's not the point. He is saying, don't trust in that stuff. Live simply. Travel light. Because there's work to do. There's work to do. We are to trust the provision of Christ. Then he goes on, says, we will need to uphold the honor of Christ. Verse 12, as you enter the house, or verse 11, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it. Stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace Return to you, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Don't have time to get into all the details of this, but I believe 
piecing it together, what Jesus is saying here is that we need to, first of all, there, there are many people to reach, so don't get bogged down with people that aren't interested. That's one point. But I also think that he is saying we need to uphold his honor. Remember, remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, do not give dogs what is holy, do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Don't give the precious truth of the gospel. Don't, don't bear witness to the beauty of the name of Christ over and over and over again to people who are just going to trash it and trample it. Move on. Move on. Uphold the honor of Christ. His name is too precious for us just to allow people to step all over it. It is too precious for us to keep going over it again and again so that people can keep trashing that name again and again. Uphold the honor of Christ. We must feel the compassion of Christ. We must embrace the confidence of Christ and imitate the model of Christ and bear the authority of Christ and trust the provision of Christ and uphold the honor of Christ. And then finally, we need to rest. We need to rest in the judgment of Christ. Look at verses 14 and 15. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or that town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is sobering, and yet in a strange way, somewhat comforting, or at least a place to rest our hearts. You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 and 19, where those two cities who, because of sexual immorality and because of neglect of the poor and, and, and injustice toward those in need, God rained down on them fire and brimstone and the whole towns were just obliterated. Jesus says here, that when we go in and bear witness for Christ and people reject us, it will actually be worse for them than for Sodom and Gomorrah. The reason being because Sodom and Gomorrah really weren't given much of a chance. They didn't have the truth. They didn't have all that we know. They didn't know Jesus. They never heard the message of the gospel and Jesus is saying that judgment is harder. This is a sobering word. Judgment is harder on those who know the truth and reject it. And I need to issue a warning here. There are, there are people probably in this church and in virtually every church, people who come week after week and hear the message of the cross, the message of the gospel and walk out unchanged. I need to warn you. The more you know, the more you're accountable for. And if you reject the message of Christ, it is going to be far more unbearable for you on the day to come. But why, why does Jesus say this to us? What is this, what is this unexpected 
comfort, I'm not sure that's the right word. Um, you know, he's about to tell us that we're gonna be persecuted, we're gonna suffer on this mission. And he's just told us that there are gonna be towns who reject you. What's our temptation when our witness is rejected? Isn't our temptation to get frustrated, to get upset, to, to get angry, to get self-righteous, to get condemning, to, 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 to just want to give up on it all? What, what Jesus is saying here is, don't respond like that. I'm going to take care of that. Judgment day is coming. I'll take care of those who hate you and despise you and persecute you. Just go about the business of the kingdom. Just keep proclaiming Jesus. You're going to need to know if you're going to be faithful in going. You're going to need to go. Know that there are going to be people that you share Jesus with who not only reject it, but they laugh in your face. And you're going to need to have peace in your own heart when that happens, knowing that Jesus will make all things right. I don't need to make it right. I don't need to prove myself right. I don't need to get even. I don't need to get mad. I don't need to get anything because Jesus is going to take care of it. We need to be able to rest in the judgment of Christ. And by the way, as a side note, this is true in the face of all injustice and all oppression and all evil in this world. Isn't it true that ultimately... Our only real comfort in a world that is so badly broken and so full of injustice, our only ultimate comfort is the knowledge that in the end God will make it right. Because in this world it's never going to be made right. Ah, uh, but there is that day when the perfect just judge who does everything right will make it all right. And wrong will be no more. And injustice will be done. That's a side note, but it's a note we need to hear in our broken world. As we pray and as we go, we need to be carrying with us the, an understanding of these truths. We need to feel the compassion of Christ, embrace the confidence of Christ, imitate the model of Christ, bear the authority of Christ, trust the provision of Christ, uphold the honor of Christ, and rest in the judgment of Christ. So as I close, I wonder what defines us individually and as a church. Are we a church that is so on mission that we are consistently praying pleading with God give us workers so much to do Father give us workers give us laborers we pleading with God to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest field and are we pleading that their labors will be blessed because we can plant and we can weed and we can water, but only God can give the increase. And so we need to plead, Lord, have mercy, save sinners through our weak attempts at evangelism, at proclaiming the gospel. Lord, Lord, come send workers and make them effective. We need to plead with God. 
day after day, Lord, give us more workers. Lord, give us more willing men and women and young people ready to go out into the harvest field. And then we need to go. Wherever that go is, it's different for everybody. Some are to go next door. Some are to go to their children. Some are to go to the place of work. Some are to go to their neighbors. Some are to go to 69th Street evangelize. Some are to go to bridge. Some are, but we're to go. We're to go. We're not to be standing still. We're not to be turning inward, but outward. Because there's a world full of harassed and helpless sheep. People don't have a clue what life is about and even less of an understanding of what the life to come is about. And we have the words of eternal life. And we have the kingdom. May God give us grace to discern our place, to discern our role, and to commit to it. We're going to sing, then pray. Alex is going to close us in just a moment. Let's respond. Let's respond, both in singing and in prayer and in commitment. And let's ask God to do a mighty work in us.